This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityandcaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I visit with a friend who's an executive creative director, UX practitioner, and a brilliant brand strategist. She's a visual designer that specializes in digital print and brand user experience design. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the founder and chief creative officer of Raspberry Zoo, Lisa Peacock. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hi, Pat. How are you? That was such a nice intro. You deserve it. We have been friends a long time. So full disclosure to our listener that we've worked on a number of projects together. And because of that, I feel like I can dive in. You are a strong evangelist for a better user experience. Why is that so important? Everyone should have a good user experience with everything. Every day we should be having a good user experience. My biggest thing is I tell people you should design your life. and so. In the entire entire life is the biggest UX of all, if you think about it. So that's why it's so important. I think people don't remember anything but the experiences that they have, whether that's with something digital or something in real life, offline, online. So that's the most important part of a designer's job. Yeah. And I've always known you to be a person that designs your life. And in a way, it, everything from a meal to a party to a any kind of gathering, what your guest room looks like, you're wired for design. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I could have gone in any other direction. Although I feel like people tried to tell me I shouldn't. But yeah, there's just no way I, I could be anything but, I don't think. When you're choosing your adventure in life, does that overload of seeing things through a designing eye ever hobble you? Or is it always just give you more control of the outcome? I think it's both. I think that sometimes it can take you down kind of a very detailed path that a lot of people aren't willing to go and don't understand actually why some of the details matter because the details are the invisible piece of the puzzle. And then other times for me personally, obviously it gives me a lot of clarity to be able to see everything super wide because I can see the end result before we're done. So because of that, I always kind of know where I'm headed. There's never a question. And I always know when something is not going in the direction that I need it to go in. So that's kind of the creative director in me. I'm able to take teams and say, nope, 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 we got to go this way, this way. So I say both, actually, because then you have to manage the ones that don't understand why are we paying so much attention to some of these details and why are we not spending time on these details? So there's a little bit of education that goes on with those that aren't so like-minded. Right. You have to be a diplomat and a psychologist uh, to sometimes to get members of the team to play along. 
Yes. Well, I mean, and so hence my degree was actually in social psychology, if you can imagine. I mean, I had start out my career as a designer with fine arts and I went down a media arts degree and stuff, but ultimately I do have formal education and social ecology. Lo and behold, it turned into more of like human factors and design and all of that psychology that you need to apply as a good designer, a good leader has really bared well, especially with user experience. So yeah, I'm happy about the merging of those two worlds. Well, in the last couple of years, you and I have had an opportunity to work on brand development and brand strategy for companies in a lot of different sectors in transportation and AI. And so I'm curious, and I think something maybe you could share with a listener that doesn't know what the importance of brand development is, is when a company comes to you, what are those first questions you're asking about who they are and why they do what they do? And what's your sort of headline questions you try to find the riddle solution to? I think everyone's probably has a similar design process. It's always start with discovery. You have to kind of discover what that magic is. And some of that is administrative, defining priorities and what their business is all about. But I always say that I start with the current state, where you are, no matter what, and then where we want to be. And we do that during discovery. So kind of what I call solution thinking. We understand all of our parameters, who we're designing for, what are the requirements, if it's a business, what kind of business goals and objectives do people have? And then we got to document a journey based on what you discover. So that's where I always start. I feel like the magic is always in the discovery piece of the puzzle. I could keep going if you want the full design process. Actually, I kind of do want you to take us through a menu of that only because I don't want you to give away your state secrets. But the fact is, is that every one of these is different. But sometimes you run into the same question of people don't know what business they're in. Yeah. Isn't it funny? Sometimes people come to me, I mean, because obviously I make my living in digital design, although I have my hand in all kinds of different aspects of design across my life, like we talked about. But a lot of times clients will come and say, you know, I need a new website or you know what? I need a brochure. And really, when you dig deeper during this discovery period, you realize they don't need that at all. Like they're actually not speaking to their target audience correctly. They don't need a new website. They need a new commercial on TV. So it's interesting how designers to me are problem solvers. That's what we do. We solve problems and we do that through design. And a lot of people don't know what their problems are. <laughs> so, so yes, we have to discover that. And it's that dance of when a client says, this is my problem and you have to be the one to say, it's not your problem. <laughs> Let me tell you what your problem is. So that's an interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I know that you are capable of designing websites, which is the checklist of things that will accomplish having given a new name, branded something, or given a new tagline, or a new mission statement, or a new identity, or something in their marketplace that makes them stand out from their competitor. But I think they do often confuse it with Let's print new business cards. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like when you're a designer, you have so much to carry, right? If you're a developer or you're a project manager, you definitely have these very vertical places that you are on a project. And a designer, we kind of cover a very wide 
breadth of stuff. We have to be strategists. We have to be creative thinkers. We have to remember all the details of someone's business. We have to learn about that business. Coders and those kinds, they, you don't necessarily have to do that. So it's quite a wide career in terms of what you have to bring to the table. And if you don't, then you just stay a young designer that is good at design, but never can branch out to lead design projects. And that's okay too. Individual contributors are super important and we need them, but we also need the ones that kind of can lead the way. Right. And design graphics and all of that are important, but if you're going to communicate to the business sector, you have to know the culture and you have to understand what's important to their bottom line and what's important to their image. And it's not just about making a, a nice logo. Right. And you actually can only make a nice logo once you understand all of that stuff. If it's that logo is not baked into everything that that company is and is about and wants to be, then that logo does you no good. Right. You take an approach of somewhat developing what is that company's personality and brand and how are they aligned in the universe. So you actually have a way of asking the right questions to break out, to explain to them that they maybe have a specific personality. Yeah. I mean, brand personality, trying to find the personas, it's a very it's typical agency model that a lot of creative directors or people in creative use. I mean, we all kind of use it a little bit differently, but it's really important to find out who you are as an organization and whatever that organization may be, big, small. And then when you find out who you are and then you develop yourself in that way, that actually allows you to speak to customers and gain customers that are going to stay with you. So if, for example, you find out that your personality is more of like a lover and you like to connect to others and organizations, funny enough, they will find themselves in these very human-like personality traits. You'll get groups of people in the room together and you'll that'll fall out, right? But then what that tells you is, is that those are the traits you need to look for in your potential customers or clients. Because if you look for the opposite of somebody that's, say, more innocent and a little safer, they don't want to work or they won't work well with those that are a little bit more of a connector. They're more staid and they don't like that kind of personality. So I try to remind my clients when we do this personality work that if you want longevity with your clients, if you want to attract the right clients where you don't have a lot of difficult situations. We have to establish what your personality is. And then we have to speak to those that that personality resonates. And that will provide you with a nice long life with a customer. They'll forever be your customer. And those are the best ones. Yeah. So the rogues and the rebels are attracted to certain risk takers and, and other people who want some stability or sincerity. And it is interesting because those brands range from Hallmark to Toys R Us, and each of them does have a sector, right? They have something out there that they really are building, even a giant niche audience sometimes. People who like unicycling uh, go to unicycle.com to buy a unicycle. They don't go to some other store for it. That's a free commercial for unicycle.com, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, I thought we weren't supposed to do that, Pat. <laughs> I don't think anything's going to hurt the unicycle business. They got a lock on that. Let me take you to a place. Can you pinpoint when you discovered your creative identity, when you realized that this was your calling? Probably when I was a kid. <laughs> and I, I was an only child and 
obviously my parents were lovely and I did get a lot of attention, I have to say, and I loved that attention. And I had a little stage, but it was a fireplace <laughs> at my parents' house. And it felt like a stage to me because it was a little kind of marble landing in front of the fireplace in the living room. And so I would sit for days and I would listen to full albums. Like my favorite one was Debbie Boone. Do you remember the Debbie Boone album? And I would write these plays for the album. And then I would act it out myself, but I would get just a few of my friends to come over and then I would make them like act out this full play that I'd written <laughs> to these crazy albums. And then I'd sit my parents down or anyone who would be like, okay, we're going to start the show now. And everyone had to be quiet. So I think it was back then when I knew <laughs> I'm a little, not only a creative, but probably a little wacky. And I was also pretty controlling because my poor friends, I would definitely give them like the B parts. Like I would have all the starring roles and then I'd bring in like my other friend, Katrina, and be like, okay, so you're the dad and you say, okay. And then you leave the stage <laughs> and then I make her the boyfriend next. And he just had to say, I love you and walk off. So probably back then when I knew that my playwriting skills were starting to flourish. <laughs> in a weird way, you were creating an event. I mean, the event happened to be a theatrical presentation, but it's a lot to be a theatrical producer. And that means the writing and the costumes and everything that goes to it. And then getting your audience to sit down and watch it. <laughs> I feel like I could help you out, Pat. <laughs> Get butts and seats. I was very good at that. <laughs> well, that is the art of theater. I often tell people that I'm really not in the entertainment business. I'm in the real estate business because I rent seats. And when the curtain goes up, all the real estate goes bad. If it's not sold, it's it's empty. But you also have epic party throwing skills. I don't mean to out you on this, but when you throw a party, you have all these elements that are also related to design, which is the vibe, the music, the flowers, the food, the drink. How do people arrive? How do people leave? And it's quite a marvel to watch. I guess I could talk about a couple of things that we did together that were really fun. When you were with the Designing North Studios, we did a mixer that I've mentioned to somebody else on this podcast, but you would be the one to speak about it. And I'll just say the title of it was Night of the Round Tables. And why don't you tell folks what the intent of the event was? Because there was an outcome you were searching for. Well, when I was with Designing North Studios and I was the, the creative director there, I worked with freelancers for the most part. I only had a few folks on staff. And so it was hard. You couldn't have company parties and those kinds of things. And as freelancers, we don't have those things to go to, do we? We don't have parties and picnics and all that good stuff. So we're usually working alone and collaborating. But I wanted to bring together an event for not just the people that worked for me as freelancers, but also their friends and their freelancers and bring together just a fun event that would just elicit all kinds of creative thinking. It wasn't supposed to be a networking event whatsoever. I didn't want that. I don't like networking events. They're uncomfortable. I wanted everyone just to come and play basically and interact together. So of course, who did I call to help me think about how over-the-top creative this whole thing could be? 
of course I called you and hence we started down the path. But you know what? I have to say, Pat, my inspiration came from a dinner party that you threw in LA years and years ago. Remember my inspiration was I wanted to feel like that dinner party that Pat threw in LA. To me, that's what ticked it off. Although we added so much more to that, but I think everyone felt so listen to versus a networking event or even a company party. Everyone felt included. Everyone was amazed. And at every turn, people were like, what? Oh my God. People that never would have been in the same room together. I mean, you brought a lot of guests as well, but designers from say tech startups to entrepreneurs to some of the people from some of the studios, right? Like Pixar. It was crazy. The interesting thing was none of them knew each other. So one of our missions was how do we engage them with each other without micromanaging it? How do we get them to have an experience where it's kind of a lifeboat where you feel like it's time to make friends right now? And I, I have to reveal, well, I'm going to expose the fact that the dinner party that I threw, which I really enjoyed throwing, was a result of something that my parents and aunt and uncle did. When I was a kid, I remember them throwing this style of a party. And my mind was blown by what it was. And it wasn't a progressive dinner where you go from house to house. It was a trick menu where <laughs> you give a menu out to everybody and you tell them that they have to order certain amount of things. You and I did it in four courses where you ordered four items for each course. And so there were 20 items. You had to pick 16 of them and you ordered your first four, second four, but it wasn't as clean as saying, I want this appetizer and this entree. It was a series of riddles and kitschy names and a fun thing to try to solve. And often you didn't know what you were ordering, but when the time was up, you turned your menu in and then you were in for a night of surprises. Now, in the case of what you did, which I loved, was you hired a proper chef and a catering staff to whirlwind it in the kitchen. <laughs> Because the worst thing about a dinner party like this is you're not operating a proper kitchen. And it can get very confusing if you don't have a team of people who are on board with this. I mean, it took some warning. Oh, we had so many people in that kitchen. Everybody had a different tray because their four things had to go out. But the funny thing was that the person waiting was sort of puzzling. What did you order? What did you order? It, it prompted conversation. So I think that's why that particular thing worked well for this. But also you very cleverly, between the four courses, there was an opportunity to showcase an exchange with somebody in front of the group, like a mini interview that they didn't know was coming. Or we did a card trick using somebody that got them involved in something a little bit more mystical or magical. And so it allowed for these different page turns in the evening without there being a post-dinner presentation. So those were all fun and great. Yeah, that was the important part of it, though, is that you wanted everyone to feel important. You don't want, oh, well, we've got this speaker and oh, I just don't like being at those kinds of things. It makes everybody in the audience feel as though these are the special people. And to me, everyone is special. So it was important that we reached out to everybody in their own way. And then again, across the aisle too, right? Somebody, you could be sitting next to somebody that had done something completely amazing and you just would never have known that if you kept it to the traditional kind of networking evening. So much better to go that. Remember we started with a thick toast and we put that vichyssoise in the champagne flute and it was all thick. Remember everyone thought, oh, we're gonna have a toast and it was, ah, that thick soup. <laughs> 
Do you remember that? Yeah. By the way, that was an idea from Chef Bob Bloomer, who's the Surreal Gourmet. We used a couple of his ideas. In fact, I had him on the program talking about his pound cake French fries. And that was a, came out of one of his recipe books. Yeah. And thank you for going by McDonald's. So, yeah, we didn't we didn't invent everything. We just presented it. You remember you went to McDonald's and you got the carton. Yeah, it was super fun. And I have to say, I have memorable exchanges with some of those people today that I met that night. And I think that's part of it is that when you have an epic experience with any group of people, whether it's a weekend ski trip or any kind of thing, it does cement a certain kind of thing in your relationship. Yeah. I mean, people still talk to me about that party. And some people that met that evening have still remained connected. So therein is the win, right? Is that if you could have connected at least one or two people, then my job is done. Yeah. And really, that was, I think, <laughs> a makeup for something that years before, 16, 17 years ago, when you and I first thought we we're going to do some kind of crazy event, we were going to throw Porch Fest on my front porch in Mandeville, Louisiana. I had a big old house from 1879 and we were going to put on like a night of bands on the porch and invite everybody to be on the front lawn. And the date, the weekend of that event was when Katrina came blowing through Mandeville, Louisiana and it stopped porch fest in its tracks forever. And so we kind of had to table that it was really disappointing. We've got to resurrect porch fest. You know, I have a porch. We've talked about it. We will. No, I know, but I'm saying it was 10 plus years until we finally came around to doing the Night of the Roundtable. So maybe Porch Fest is in our future. And you did spend a lot of time in the music business. So I remember at that time you were kind of instrumental in what bands might be fun to bring in. You still got a music vibe in your life. I do. Yeah. I think in another life, I would have come back and probably been a singer. No doubt. If I could kind of do it again, I probably would do that, like singer-songwriter, because I do still love it. I still take singing lessons. I try to sing every once in a while. But, you know, it's funny because designers and creators, I mean, I don't know about you, Pat, because you're perfect in every way, but we all have these kind of insecurities about how creative we are. And then in those areas where we're not doing it every day, for me, it's singing, playing guitar. You kind of get a little insecure about that. So as much as I love it and I still do it, do I get out and sing? Do I get up on the stage when I'm asked all the time? I don't, but I wish I did more of it. But yeah. Is that something you like to do more of? Absolutely. And I think the older you get, the less your insecurities take hold. So the more and more I think, yeah, who cares? So maybe, maybe in the future, more and more of stuff. But I love being around people that are creative in that aspect of life, for sure. I admire just all of that singing and everything. We're a very interesting combination when we work on a project too, because you are very, very organized and you do see the big picture. You know, I'm more brainstormy guy with comic contributions, but when it comes to things like color palette and when it comes to fonts and when it comes to the very specific stuff, you really know a lot about it. And you also have a really systematic way of creating color combinations I mean, I think of you every time I'd see somebody's logo and I go, why, why did they choose that? And you're really good at the why. I'm wondering where that comes from. <laughs> well, because what, like what we talked about in the beginning, the why comes from the real why, the real purpose of why 
you exist. Why does this company exist? The purpose of something will find the color palette. It will find its way because of purpose. I mean, it's not because I think these colors go together or because an art teacher said they do, or even now you can go to all these websites and say, give me some color palettes that look nice together. But the why drives that for sure. So when you ask, why did you do this? I, it's always baked in the reason why that company exists. And that's the most important thing. I want to pitch a book to you that typically when I have a guest on the podcast, in the conversation, it makes me think of a book I want to share with the person. So I don't know if this is one you know or not, and I'll share the title and you could say, I already have that. If you don't, I will send it to you as a thank you gift. But it's called The Secret Lives of Colors. Do you know this by... Cassia St. Clair, I think it is. It's a really, really amazing. Is it an old book, though? No, I don't think it's that old. Or is it a new book? No, it's not brand new, but I read it a couple of years ago, and I really got into it because there are colors with great names, like vermilion. It's kind of a wine red stone. And then they, they tell you the history. They get you the details of where it really came from, and it describes the rocks in Rome that were sweating triplets of quicksilver. Like the language is so rich and it's kind of like the biography of colors. So if you don't know that book, that one is coming to you and you can learn about obsidian and all the other unusual colors that are somewhere else on the rainbow that aren't the primary colors. It's a book that I'll be sitting and reading and everyone in my family will be like, what are you reading? <laughs> Only a designer could love some of the sounds of colors and the descriptions of colors, but it's true. Isn't it funny? I think, I think some people think I'm so wacky, so that'll just add to my wacky list. Well, I'm one of those people that thinks you're wacky, but also this is really in your wheelhouse, right? And I learned things like cerulean, I think is a color that represents... It's kind of a grayish blue, but it represents every changing color of the ocean when it's moving. And that's like, wow, what color is that? Like, it's never one color, really. Do you have a favorite color area that speaks to you? I know that you have a house full of white furniture, but what colors are the ones that really define you? Well, I'm very easy because, yes, you are correct. I have a very white house and I'm all about neutrals. And my pop of color is usually always an aqua blue and every shade and every shade of that from all the way over to kind of a minty green on the green side to the, it can almost get a little bit purple at times, but not quite on the blue or kind of purpley spectrum. But for the most part, it's kind of that like aqua pool blue, which is so it's good that my living room has a window out to a pool, <laughs> but yes, so most of the time people will give me presents as either white or aqua. Okay. That's good to know. Everybody listening now knows what to get you for Christmas. I also think that the business that you're in, the freelancing in some ways, each time you get to another company and make a new client or partner is that you have this entrepreneurial mindset, which is something that I grew up with, which is you must assume full responsibility for the enterprise of that, that goes all the way back to the fireplace staging where you have to figure out every detail. But does that restrict how many clients you can take at a time? Yes, absolutely. I have to be careful to make sure I can focus and I don't 
get completely distracted. So I tend to not put too many clients on my plate at once because outside of my clients, like we said, I'm always designing my life. So I've got projects outside of work always going on. So yeah, I'm pretty careful and scripted and and also about who I work with these days. Right. I mean, I think I used to, as a young freelancer, like anybody, 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 but now I really do care about what it is your business is doing and, and its impact on the world. So it's very important to me that I work with people that are doing the right thing and have a very similar mindset. So that goes back to the brand personality. The only way we're going to mesh and the only way that I could probably create for you is if I know you're taking that creation and you're going out and you're doing something good or at least trying to do something good and nothing is baked in any sort of nefarious activity. So I'm pretty careful and I'm grateful that I'm able to be that way. Yeah. And I witnessed that when we worked on an AI project, you have an advisor on the principles of, of AI driven UX, which lives sort of at the intersection of the human-centered design and the AI machine learning area. And that is definitely a place where we tried to keep it in the natural world instead of being all futuristic, that all the design was meant to help humans and the earth and sustainability. And you really put some good guardrails up, I think, for all of us to be thinking about. And I think that responsibility is something that I recognize and admire. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's easier to do obviously when your client also believes that, but you know, everyone gets clouded by revenue goals and all kinds of good stuff. But I think if you keep your eye on how the decisions you're making in business impact people and humanity, you will reap the rewards of that. I mean, everyone will, but, but ultimately your soul really reaps the rewards of that too. So designing for good has always been a part of my mindset for sure. Yeah. You're also chief brand officer for an uh, exercise idea. And I don't know if that's something you could talk about or if that's under the radar. So you have to tell me whether or not we can open that door or not. You know, we are an early stage startup and we're just about to start looking for some funding. We've been kind of heads down. It's probably not something I should chat about, but ultimately you if somebody's listening and you kind of want to find more about it, you can. But again, I think what we're trying to do is is open up and create access for 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 all in terms of how to manage your health. And I think that that's what this product that we're coming up with does. And I think sometimes healthcare can be very the wealthy get it, the athletes get it. and your everyday people who could really benefit from it, they can't. So how do we create and build things that, that opens that door for people? And that's kind of what this little, I don't know if we're allowed to say names, but that's what this little MIM product is all about. Don't so. say anything. Don't, okay, don't say anything. No, no, I don't want you to ruin the launch or ruin something for your partners. You can say whatever you want, but I don't want to trick you into saying something that might be too early. It kind of is going in a couple different ways. So bottom line is, is it's we're opening up access. Let's keep it a secret. Yeah, let's keep it a secret. So yeah, people might want to find out what it is. The main thing I guess I wanted people to hear is that you, as you said, designers are problem solvers. So one of the problems that you identified was access for all for this kind of thing and affordability for this kind of thing and something that might help people live better lives. Absolutely. I mean, I can give you just the 
What it is really quickly in a nutshell is we produce exercise prescriptions and that's what this company is doing and how we do that and the science behind that, I think we don't need to kind of cover today, but everybody has a specific, it's like personalized medicine, a specific prescription for exercise and it changes every couple months like your body does. And it really is the way to combat any sort of cardiovascular issues. And we all die of them. I mean, I think every 36 seconds, someone dies of either a heart attack, stroke, diabetes, or in that metabolic state. So why are we not kind of naturally trying to figure out how to combat that? So that's the road if anyone's interested, but yeah, we're excited about it. Good. Well, congratulations. I like that you cover a lot of territory. So it's for clients that you're learning more about transportation data and AI and those sorts of things. But where your heart is in some cases is in these personal projects that involve health and fitness and sustainability. And I feel like there's a lot of people in the world that have kind of started to shine the light on areas that can improve things for others. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like Pat though, like why wouldn't we all now just be doing things that benefit more people? right? Like, I don't even know how you could want to live in a silo and do bad stuff. I mean, that's not even fun. (laughs) Here's the thing. I don't want to be high and mighty about it, but I do think that greed and power damage their empathy and keep them from thinking about humanity. From my standpoint, you want to develop a restless dissatisfaction with the status quo, and you want to shoot to improve whatever you have, what you do, what you expect of yourself, even if it's 10% better a day, it feels to me like that's what we're reaching for so that we're always, I guess, contributing back. You would think though that the higher folks rise or the more money you have, the more you can give back, right? So why some people stay in that greed mode is always been a mystery to me. I don't understand that. It's like the more I have, the more I want to give, the more generous I want to be. Yeah. I don't want to be high and mighty either. Well, again, it's not any specific person or company or anything, but I do think in all of those, there's a percentage of people who operate from a place of fear that no matter how much they have, it's all going to go away. That is another kind of personality type, which is a company you probably wouldn't work for. I think they just didn't have the right fireplace and they couldn't get their parents to sit and watch them do plays. I think that's really probably what happened. It does all come down to that. And I do think that good parents and people who help you build self-confidence, people who allow you independence, not everybody has that privilege either. They may have one parent or no parents or a parent in jail. Like you start off on the backside of things and it really takes a lot to overcome it. Yeah. I mean, and even if it's not parents, right, it's mentors, teachers, you can find them. And I definitely try to do that too. get involved in designer mentor programs and how to give back. I'm nobody famous, that's for sure. But at the very least, I've been able to navigate a career that I'm comfortable with. And if I can ever help other designers navigate that, I always try to do it. Well, to that end, let's take a moment as a design mentor. And let's say somebody brand new is getting into this. You know, they have a little art skills or some graphics. What kind of advice would you give a young designer about the scope or what to be looking at or where to study? Well, it's not hard to know the answer because I have a son who's following in my footsteps and he's always asking me these kinds of questions too. So 
I always say to them, if you're a designer, so it just depends on, are you a fine artist? Are you an illustrator, graphic designer? Like what kind of designer are you? But regardless of that, you're always going to be good at your art, I think, right? You're going to be trained. You go to art school. That's a given. But what you have to think about is, are you solving someone's problem? So it always comes back to that. And are you listening to how your design is going to do that? Because if you just approach any project, it doesn't matter if it's graphic design, digital design, product design, interior design. If you just approach it with, oh, it's all about colors and we just need a logo, that isn't the approach. You have to learn much more about why you're doing something, who you're doing it for, and then only then can all of the art and all of that piece of the puzzle come. So you have to learn to be a good listener. You have to learn to ask really good questions. And you might not even be able to like the design that you create per se. It might not be your personal favorite, but it's good for them, right? It solves their problem and it actually gets them to the next level or to their goals and objectives. So that's what I would say is if I was to summarize, good listener and think about the problem that you're solving and for who. Yeah, I like your note there, though, that you may have to settle for something that is appropriate and right for them, although it may not be what you would do for your own personal thing, because being able to take a note or make an adjustment or find that landing for them isn't about ultimately what you like. No. I mean, I always have to tell my son, look, this isn't fine art. You've got to think of this in terms of what it is they need. And I think young designers really struggle with that. They want to like what they do all the time. And you can, you can like it, but it has to be baked in, in an understanding of you like it because it's actually the right outcome for your customer, for your client. You don't have to like it and then go, I'm going to hang it on the wall. So I think it sometimes it gets confusing, the fine art between the art of business, if you will. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have worked with and for people like Stanford Law School on their website strategies. You know, you're not going to hang that on your wall. That's a very purpose-driven thing. I know. It's funny that you say that because actually when I left Stanford Law, my team put together this big picture that I hang on my wall <laughs> of all of the work that I did, right? Whether it was logos or magazines or like even strategy work, infographics. And it was so cool what they did, but sometimes you do <laughs> hang stuff on your wall, but not because you created it. Obviously now that's a nostalgic memory of the working relationship you had with that organization and those people but you didn't set out to put it over your couch. No, gosh, no, 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 no. Yeah, that's correct, correct. When you do work, and you do work with website folks, tell me how you approach breaking down the pages and where it goes and what's necessary. Without getting overly clinical, most people think of a website as you just open it and then it tells you some information. But there's much more to uh, designing that. Oh boy, well, yeah, just depends on what kind of website it is. Typically, and I won't get too nitty gritty, but it's either a website that's kind of an information-based website or it's actually nowadays, right? It's a product. You get online and it's a product. You're, it's an e-commerce. You're buying something. You're doing something. So you start out really just mapping the site out. It's called a site map and you do an information architecture about what information needs to go where. And then also you prescribe some customer journeys. What kind of journey do you want them to take? What do you want them to do? How do you want them to feel? 
And ultimately, what's that final CTA or call to action to get them to either hang out with you, talk to you, like whatever that goal is, buy from you. So there's all kinds of methodologies to get a website in ship shape, that's for sure. And those are just really quick and easy lessons that you learn early when you're a website designer. And speaking of websites or information, if they wanted to find out more about you or Raspberry Zoo, is there a place on Instagram or a website or something that you would send them? So I'm funny. I'm very private. I've never hung a shingle out for Raspberry Zoo, my corp. I've never had a website (laughs) myself, but I do have something called designinglisapeacock.com, which is kind of my personal stuff that I do. And I always think I'm a work in progress, I say. And I put up stuff that I love that I do, whether that's outcome from a brand, whether that's something that I've written, because I write for medium and I write for clients, or, you know, I love photography, photos I've taken, or even events I've designed or homes that I've designed. And I have it up there. So if you're interested to kind of see what my brain looks like, (laughs) designing Lisa Peacock, dot com is where I stick everything. That's great. A CAT scan of the internal <laughs> design of your brain is probably a, an interesting thing. That'll keep people busy for a while. Yeah. Have a peek. I'm so grateful that you took the time to have this, I'll call it a fireside chat, given your start you had in the business. And we look forward to seeing what it is that you're designing in the future, because as you said, your story is still being written and I know it's going to be beautifully illustrated and chalk with fruit and flowers and all the stuff you always have on your tabletop. Oh, Pat, thanks for having me. You're cool. You're cool too. Let's get focused on Porch Fest soon. (laughs) Yeah, please. Let's do it. We might have to make it a global Porch Fest and figure out how to do it virtually so everybody listening can join us. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Step.